You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Ah, Constantine, how much evil was born, not from your conversion, but from that donation that the first wealthy pope received from you. These lines come from Dante Alighieri's famous Divine Comedy in his part on hell, referred to as Inferno. Dante wrote this in early 1300s, a century or so ahead of our storyline, but the reference to the donation is an important one. This donation of Constantine is a document forgery that surfaced in the 8th century Carolingian courts. According to the document, as Constantine moved his capital of the Roman Empire to Constantinople in the east, he gave the Bishop of Rome, Pope Sylvester I, domain over the west. Now, in contemporary times, the succession of Constantine was a mess, and the Pope had nothing to do with it. However, 400 years later, Pepin the Short, son of Charles Martel and father of Charlemagne, was presented the document by Pope Stephen II in seeking support against the Lombards. Under the authority of Constantine, Pope Stephen anointed Pepin as king of the Franks, supplanting the puppet Merovingian kings. Pepin's forces defeated the Lombards in 756, leading to a treaty, in part referred to as the Donation of Pepin, whereby the Bishop of Rome was given temporal, that is secular, and uh, power and authority over what became known as the Papal States. Despite a few short interruptions, the Papal States persisted until 1870. Finding a balance between earthly power and spiritual leadership proved a thorny issue for centuries. The popes of the Middle Ages ranged from military leaders to frail hermits and from well-meaning reformers to power-hungry megalomaniacs. This ebb and flow shaped politics and power in many ways from Rome to London and throughout all of Europe and beyond. Welcome to the History of Modern Politics. My name is Chris Spangle. Thank you so much for joining us here on Episode 9 as we have... Well, we're going to take a tour all around Europe in this time period from 493 to 1153. And so this is another kind of catch-up episode, I guess you'd say, where we're going to tie a lot of threads together, tie the present to the past, and uh, get set up for next episode, which is the Magna Carta. You've heard it. You... Don't remember it from seventh grade history, and we're going to explain it all. But we have to kind of go through a lot of things to set up, specifically, Matt, a lot of what is happening with the Pope. So, uh, Ty, explain why we started with this particular cold open. Yeah, that's right. So the entire history of the papacy, as we've talked in previous episodes, you know, obviously everybody knows who the Pope is, but like we've talked a little bit about how the Pope gained power through the ages and and how he became so influential as a force within uh, within Christendom in the in the Middle Ages. And, you know, we've, we've talked dribs and drabs about it in our previous episodes as we've been setting up, you know, everything that's going on in England and France. But to really get to the to the nature of it and set up now where we're going to get to like the pinnacle of the Pope's power here, it's important to kind of step back and just understand the dynamics in Italy. And then, of course, the other key component here is the Crusades and the Crusades. Uh, again, probably heard, remember them from seventh grade middle school. You've probably seen movies that involve the Crusades. But like what really were they and how did they start and why? And we're going to get into all of that today because it actually is incredibly important as we get to the next episode as we set up Magna Carta. Yeah, it's hugely influential influential in politics in the Middle East uh, and in modern society today. 
So, but we have to jump back to the fall of Western Rome, the Western Roman Empire. There were two Roman empires. Remember when we last spoke about the Roman Empire, the East and the West? Uh, the Roman Empire falls. The Eastern goes on for uh, centuries after that. So let's look back to the history of Italy, where we're going to meet a variety of characters that we have referenced previously. So we're going to do our best to kind of keep it straight for you. Uh, now, this will all tie in to the growing influence of the Pope and the beginning of the Crusade. So let's start with Italy after the breakup of the Roman Empire. Now, you may recall in episode five, we briefly mentioned Theodoric the Great, of the Ostrogoths. Now, in 493, he personally killed Os Odesser. Did I say that right? We'll go with that. Odeker, right. Odesser. <laughs> you know, my uh, Anglo-Saxon <laughs> Ostrogoth uh, pronunciations are rusty. They, they, uh, he killed Odesser, uh, the recognized king of Italy, who had deposed the final Western Roman Empire emperor. And while at the banquet that was supposed to mark a peace treaty, so, you know, think Red Wedding. Mm -hmm. Around the same time, Theodoric married, oh boy, Adufl uh, we'll go Adufleda, right? Adufleda, that's kind of a fun name. It sounds like a pasta. The sister of King Clovis of the Franks and subsequently arranged marriages for his two daughters, who were already in their late teens and born of a previous concubine, spicy, to the kings of the Visigoths and Burgundians. Now, this set alliances ultimately, uh, this set of alliances, excuse me, ultimately allowed Theodoric to have control of territory ranging from Spain to the Balkans, rivaling the former extent of the Western Roman Empire by the time of his death in 526. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we we all talk about the fall of the Western Roman Empire, but here we are just, you know, 40 years later and Theodoric has essentially the same territory as what was Western Rome. The problem was he was an Ostrogoth and he, you know, was trying to make alliances with, uh, with the East. So it's a little, it, again, this reflects that as we look at history centuries and centuries later, we kind of create these clean breaks and, and things start and stop. But, you know, you could argue that this is just a fluid recontinuation of the Western Roman empire, at least right. briefly. Yeah, we, we tend to learn history in school in these periods and talk about it in that way. You know, the Middle Ages, the, the medieval era, the Dark Ages. And, but when you really study history, it all flows together. And, and it's not one singular period. It's just sort of a constant flow of events. As, you know, as we've gone from the Industrial Age to the Internet Age over the last, um, you know, 150 years, and it doesn't feel like it, right? But yeah. In the future, that, that's how it'll be marked. So the successors of Theodoric were not successful, and they ran into talented and ambitious Emperor Justinian of the Great, uh, Justinian the Great of Byzantium. Uh, now, Italy was devastated in, the dec in decades of war and came under Byzantian rule at the end of the Gothic Wars in 554. Now, however, the Eastern grip was tenuous, and the Lombards seized the opportunity gaining control of significant territory in the 560s and 570s. Now, in 584, a new entity, the ex Exarch... You know, I... Ex I Exarchate. <laughs> Exarchate of... Uh, Ravenna. Really, maybe I should write out pronouncers before, because uh, I get it, and then, then we do the show and I fall apart. <laughs> Exarchate of Ravenna was established by the Byzantians that organized the remaining territory of Italy, which remained in their control. It was this exarchate that was again invaded by the Lombards and defended by the Franks, as discussed in the introduction of this episode. 
Right. So this sets up, you know, where you know, where the Carolingians came in to uh, come into Lombard and and help defend what was going on in Italy in defense of you know Christendom because the Exarchate of Ravenna became essentially the uh, extension arm of the Byzantian Empire, Byzantine Empire, where the Pope kind of uh, resided. So at this point, uh, the, the Pope had his influence more up in Ravenna as opposed to Rome. Mm. So. so Go ahead. Yeah. So another factor con- contributing to the Byzantium's loss of the Italian lands, and it, it you know should be noted that this included massive loss of influence over the Bishop of Rome was the Arab-Byzantine conflict, which we've talked about before in in the beginning of episode five. So that Omeyyad Caliphate rapidly expanded in the late seventh and early eighth centuries mostly to the detriment of the Byzantine Empire. So this distraction opened that opportunity up for the Lombards. Their triumph was short-lived. Pepin's son Charlemagne, who we've talked about in episode five again, sealed their defeat in 774 and took on the title King of the Lombards, uniting it with the rest of his now large Frankish empire. And ceremonially and symbolically, then Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne as Emperor of the Romans in 800, once again, trying to create this continuation from the, you know, the history of the Western Roman empire. This act is remembered more in history than it likely was at the time, (laughs) but it's a turning point for Latin Christendom and it cemented the turn away from Constantinople. Keep going. I'm having a yeah, sure. Uh, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> so around this time, you know, the political structure and dynamic leadership of the Muslim world was going through changes as well. The dynastic leadership, excuse me, uh, it's far beyond the scope of what we can get into here to get into all those details. But some brief summary so that we can set the broader context and bring familiarity with some of the names that you may have heard or you may come across in some deeper research. So the Umayyad Caliphate was conquered by the in the Abbasid Revolution. Uh, between the years 747 and 750, the Omeyyads then had found an exile in the Iberian Peninsula, think Spain, right, and set up the Emirate of Cordoba, which went on through many iterations, uh, but was the foundation of Muslim Spain for centuries. And, you know, quick side note, I, I read at some point, I forget what year, I think the year 1000, I mean, the population of Cordoba was probably 10 times the size of the population of London. This became Mm. a huge, huge flourishing city. Um, The formation of the Abbasid Caliphate then followed and at least nominally maintained broad Islamic political leadership for the next 750 years. So at the height of its territorial possessions in the mid ninth century, the Caliphate stretched from Northern Africa through the Levant, think the Holy Land, we'll say Levant a lot in the next two episodes, in Arabia and well into Central Asia. Uh, the Abbasids could not hold on to such a widespread territory, splintered into various administrative and semi-sovereign emirates. That's what they referred to as their you know, states, vassal states. Um, the Abbasids were then predominantly Sunni Muslims and lost territory to Egypt and a rising Shia Muslim Fatimid Caliphate, uh, which came about in 969. And those Fatimids established dominance then throughout North Africa and the Mediterranean. So in in the Arabian territory, think Iran, Iraq, um, modern day Palestine, Israel, right? You have Sunni Muslims and Egypt throughout the coast of Northern Africa and up into the islands in the Mediterranean. You have the power base being with Shiite Muslims. Um, so the Fatimids, uh, you know, had this, the, the one constant, especially with the Shia Muslims, was piracy, right? And, uh, and raids into the islands of the Mediterranean 
and into the Italian peninsula. And now we're, we're set up for some of the key events that help evolve the, the history of Italy. Yeah, this is what you'll see in Spanish and Italian architecture, especially in, in Spain, a lot of uh, Muslim influences. If you go to like St. Augustine, Florida, for instance, you'll see a lot of um, uh, Muslim influence, I would say, Arabian yeah. influences over because it was a Spanish colony. Now, you'll recall from episode five, the divisions of Francia upon the death of Charlemagne's son, Louis the Pious. Lothar I inherited Middle Francia, which included the Italian possessions. Now, upon his death, Louis the Younger inherited the Kingdom of Italy. This territory was essentially the northern half of Italy, while the southern half, known as Benevento, Benevento was quasi-independent. With the ongoing threat of Muslim invaders, referred to at the time throughout the Middle Ages as Sar- Saracens. Saracens, yep. Yep, I got that one. There you go. Louis, in alliance with the Byzantian Empire, Basil I, secured southern Italy and retook the Muslim Emirate of Bari, which had been established on Italy's western coast. Relations with the Benevetans and Byzantians were tenuous, and Louis ultimately retreated back to the north. When he died, the crown was shuffled around without a strong sense of unity or authority for the next 100 years. Yeah, so in the year 931 now, this is in that period of 100 years, Adelaide, daughter of King Rudolf II of Burgundy, was born. Now, you'll recall the place name of Burgundy is a complex mess in this territory. That This is the particular territory that mer- emerged out of middle the mar- middle Francia partition. So Rudolf simultaneously held the Kingdom of Italy for years, but then lost it to his rival, Hugh of Provence. Ten years after her father's death, King Hugh had a son. Lothair, uh, and he married the 15-year-old Adelaide. Lothair's rule over Italy was weak, and the more powerful king, Berengar II, took the throne after Lothar died in 950. He then tried to get Adelaide to marry his son, but she refused. She was captured, imprisoned, and then escaped. While under the protection and hiding from Berengar, she sent a secret message to King Otto I of Germany, asking for his protection and hand in marriage. So you might remember that King Otto I of Germany, we talked about him in episode six, he had married Edward the Elder's daughter, Edgith, right? She died in 946, and Otto was happy to oblige the rich and supposedly beautiful Adelaide at her request. They were married in 951. Berenger was deposed, and the crown of the Lombards passed back to Otto. Now, we tell this story also to tie threads together, but also like if you go dive deeper into this particular story, it's pretty cool. I'm I'm not, you know, I'm a little surprised they haven't made a, a movie about Adelaide. The, the story is pretty, pretty sweet. We couldn't get into all the details here, but so anyways, um, Berengar, you know, quickly came back and, and tried to resume power as Otto was overstretched in Italy while trying to hold, you know, onto his, his lands in, in uh, Germany as well. And the, but the rule was cemented in 961 when at the behest of Pope John Twelfth, who had been besieged by Berenger, he was victorious by, you know, victorious over Berenger's forces. So in 962, Otto was crowned Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope, which established the formation of this new Holy Roman Empire for centuries to come. So, you know, we think of Charlemagne as the first Holy Roman Emperor, but really he, he was crowned emperor, but they didn't really call it that at the time, nor did they call it the Holy Roman Empire this is where we really get the seeds and the start of the Holy Roman Empire, which would then exist for, for many centuries. So Empress Adelaide then was canonized by the Catholic Church and is recognized for her devotion to the church and had close ties 
with the Cluny Abbey, a Benedictine monastery in France. And we're going to talk about Cluny here just in a little bit. But first, let's wrap up another quick hundred years of Italian history. In the north, as we discussed, the Kingdom of Italy had been united with the Kingdom of Germany through the Holy Roman Empire and the Ottonian dynasty. So these Ottonian emperors, the descendants of Otto I, spent most of their time north of the Alps. And so between the fact you have a, an absentee ruler, you've got the papal states to the south, and actually a very vibrant economic merchant class, the north started to split into many quasi-independent city-states. So you hear about you know, the Republic of Verona, the Republic of Venice, the Republic of Milan. All this stuff has its seeds right here as the emerging city-states in uh, the north of Italy. Uh, south of the Papal States, we have ongoing tension between the local nobility, uh, you know, the, the the two key families. If you go hear a lot of research on this are the Tuscolani and the Crescenti families. They dominate the papacy for ages. Byzantine influence and then ongoing Saracen raids created a similar situation where local control had to strengthen. And this was complicated in the South. But the arrival of who, Chris, of all people? So this situation was all complicated in the South with the arrival of none other than who, Chris? The Normans. Our friend, the Normans. Yes. Uh, Sicily had been raided by Muslims since the mid-7th century. But in 827, the local Arabs, who had been peacefully coexisting on the land, launched a revolt against Byzantine control. The island was fully in Muslim control by 902 and was part of the Fatimid Caliphate in 909. Now, in 1038, the Byzantians had launched an attack to retake Sicily. Now, it's at the bottom of the boot. <clears throat> it's an island at the bottom of the boot. And it's, it's so, you know, a lot of ships go past it. So it's a very important place. This campaign was led by a Byzantine general, but the forces included the elite Varangian Var- Guard, Varangian, yeah, yeah. which was led by none other than Harold Harada and a cohort of Norman mercenaries. Now, the Byzantine-led forces began retaking the territory, but halted their advances in 1040. The Normans then turned against the Byzantines, who were now led by Harold, in a Lombard-led revolt. William of Hauteville emerged as the Norman leader and eventually landed significant territory in southern Italy. The Hauteville family, led by seven sons of Tancred of Hauteville, established a Norman dynasty that covered most of southern Italy and eventually took control of Sicily by 19. Uh, 1091. Yeah, and, and this Hauteville family came from relatively humble origins. They were essentially just, you know, Norman pirates and mercenaries. And uh, we'll hear their, you know, the, the descendants of uh, Tagrid of, of Hauteville here uh, quite a bit as we talk through the, Kent, the Crusades and um, other parts of Italian history. So now let's let's switch gears and talk about the influence of monasticism and the drive for church reform that's going to now eventually fuse up with what's going on in Italy. So in episode five, we talked about four influential church leaders of the fourth and fifth centuries. And as the Western Roman Empire fell, Constantinople and the Byzantine empires had the most influence over the selection of the popes and the actions of the bishop of rome you know the pope so this continued until the era of the carolingians who then wielded more power and you know this didn't last long earlier in this episode we mentioned the period of italian instability after louis the younger the chaos began to escalate in 887 when charles the fat you know remember him he was the last man standing of the carolingian you know sons of uh, and descendants of um, uh, charlemagne at the ep- end of episode five he was deposed not a great leader 
Italy was then far from the nexus of political power that dominated the power battles of Western Europe. So factions fought amongst each other until 887, until Otto I came in control, like we talked about in 962. So in this era of the papacy, now vested with the temporal power of the papal states, really reached its low. So from 882 until about 984, at least seven popes were either murdered or assassinated. Um, the office became embroiled with corruption and greed and was fought for by the powerful Roman aristocratic uh, families. One pope's dead body was famously dug up, dressed, nice. put on a show trial, reburied, and then dug up again, thrown into the Tiber River. Uh, throughout the reign of the first Ottonian Empire emperors, the aristocratic aristocratic Roman families just battled with each other. The whole Holy Roman emperor and a growing movement of church leaders now coming in from the outside who pushed for reform. So the drive for reform largely came out of the monasteries of Western Europe. The foundational influence for Western. Excuse me. The drive for reform largely came out of the monasteries of Western Europe. The foundational influence for Western monasticism came from Benedict of Nursia. Uh, what the uh, what is it? The rules of Benedict Saint Benedict. Yeah. It's yeah, like a fa- yeah. Christians still hipster Christians still read it today and try to follow. <laughs> he was well educated and born into a noble Italian family in the late fifth century, and he went on to found about a dozen monasteries, including the famous Monte Cassino. And he wrote an extensive essay known as the Rules of Saint Benedict. There it is which provided a framework for monastic life and the operation of monasteries. In 910, William I, the Duke of Aquitaine, founded Cluny Abbey in east-central France. And Cluny rapidly became one of the most influential forces in the church, seeking to reduce interference from the lay nobility and return to a stronger adherence of Benedictine rules. Now, prior to Cluny, not George, Many monasteries had been founded by the wealthy feudal overlords, which created, at times, some tension between strict monastic practices and the influence of money and power. Lords interfered in the operation of the monasteries and often extracted taxes and other feudal obligations from the monastery. Cluny was founded with independence and asserted this successfully, but the leaders of Cluny went a step further and established a network of monasteries that would be more or less followers of the Cluniac approach. This notion of federated monasteries was new and cemented Cluny with a strong influence over the new Cluniac monasteries that emerged throughout Western Europe. This congregation of Cluny had over a thousand monasteries by the 12th century. Now, aside from a few popes that were installed due to the direct influence of the Holy Roman Emperor, the office remained mired and embattled in the struggle for uh, for power by the Roman aristocracy. This reached a peak in 1046 when the would-be Holy Roman Emperor Henry III came to Rome to be coronated. The problem was that no less than three men claimed the right to be the rightful pope, and Henry deposed all three, held an election, and had his own candidate installed. In the next decade or so, the Holy Roman Emperor still mostly controlled papal elections. However, these popes and their most trusted advisors had close ties or were squarely part of the reform movements. That's right. And and the reformers finally won out in about in in the year, not about in 1059 with the election of Pope Nicholas II. So a papal decree was then passed that cemented a process whereby the senior clergy that were nearby Rome would then elect the pope. This is the forerunner of today's College of Cardinals, you know, the white smoke, all the things that we think about in terms of papal elections. 
In 1073, the reformer and papal cleric Hildebrand of Savannah was elected, and he took the name Pope Gregory VII. And under Pope Gregory VII, many reforms really started moving forward, reforming the rules for the clergy, which pressed for celibacy and against drunkenness, a heightened focus to root out all the heresies, including, uh, excuse me, against um, any heresies against Orthodox beliefs, solidifying the primacy of the Pope over all of Christendom, and perhaps, perhaps most famous of all, the fight against simony. Simony is the selling of church offices, and this was a close cousin of what was known as the investiture controversy. The central point of this struggle was who would have the authority to appoint and elect individuals or other key members of the clergy, abbots, bishops, uh, heads of monasteries, etc. So the wealthy landowners typically had this, and you know this is Rome trying to assert control over that process. So this applied to the office, all sorts of offices, even the Pope. And with the influence of the Holy Roman emperors, while that may have helped rescue the papacy from the aristocratic battles of the Roman elite, it was still seen as meddling. And Gregory VII uh, was at the forefront of this battle, turned to a new target, the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry IV. Now, Henry IV came to the crown as a child when his father, Henry III, died in 1056. During this time as a minor, conflict dominated with a struggle between various factions. He came to rule in his own right in 1065 at the age of 14. He lost... (laughs) I wasn't doing anything at 14. Could you imagine? (laughs) Uh, He had lost power in northern Germany at any... and, And any time focus turned to the north, new struggles with the Italians in the south would sprout. He sought to continue the right to name bishops in his kingdoms, but now faced a reformed papacy. His first conflict with Gregory VII came with excommunication in 1076 over blatant disregard for the selection of bishops from Rome. Henry repented, and in 1077 came his famous walk to Canossa, where he walked barefoot in the snow wearing sackcloth to apologize to Pope Gregory VII in person. This is one story that inspired the walk of shame by Cersei Lannister in the Game of Thrones. Henry IV would ultimately be excommunicated four times. The fourth would be issued by Pope Urban II, who became Pope in 1088. Yeah, so, and, Matt, and, yeah I was going to say, and by the way, if you've heard the term the Gregorian reforms in the Catholic Church, that, that's mm. what these are, the Gregorian reforms of Pope Gregory VII. So. Got it. So now let's turn to the Crusades. Tell us about the First Crusade. Yeah, so the Byzantine Empire had some minor resurgence despite their losses in Italy that we talked about earlier during the 11th century. A new threat from the east, though, was also advancing. Another Turkic people, uh, you know, think coming from Central Asia, known today as the Seljuk Turks. The Byzantine forces then took a heavy defeat at the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, which opened Anatolia. That's the, you know, the peninsula, if you will, large landmass that is modern day Turkey, pointing out over the northeastern part of the Mediterranean to the Seljuk occupation. And by 1092, the Seljuks had an empire that stretched from Central Asia into the Levant and the Mediterranean, including all of Anatolia. Uh, The Seljuks had adopted Sunni Islam as their state religion and now collided with the Shia Islam state of the Fatimid uh, Empire. Uh, This conflict then centered on the edges of two empires, coming together in the Levant. So in 1095, our Pope Urban II held a council of Piacenza to reassert, reassert church opposition to simony and the investiture con- controversy was still going on. But in the attendance of this uh, council were ambassadors from the Byz- Byzantine emperor Alexius I Comenius, 
who pleaded with the Western attendees to give aid to their fellow Christians in their battles against the Seljuks. Later that year, at what was known as the Council of Clermont, which was held in the Duchy of Aquitaine, where it is considered to be the first official call for the Western Christians to wage war in support of the East in an effort to rescue the restore the Levant to Christian authority. So this war would then become referred to as the First Crusade. The speech of Urban II doesn't survive in direct account, but there are several sources to help us piece, piece together uh, what his message was. So we'll quote here in part from the account of Fulcher of Chartres, which was considered to be the most reliable source. So Pope Urban speaking, although, O sons of God, you have promised more firmly than ever to keep the peace amongst yourselves and to preserve the rights of the church, there remains still an important work for you to do. For your brethren who live in the East are in urgent need of your help, and you must hasten to give them the aid. As the most of you have heard, the Turks and Arabs have attacked them and have conquered the territory. They have occupied more and more of the lands of those Christians and have overcome them in seven battles. They have killed and captured many and have destroyed the churches and devastated the empire. On this account, I, or rather the Lord, beseech you as Christ's heralds to publish this everywhere and to persuade all people of whatever rank, foot soldiers and knights, poor and rich, to carry aid promptly to those Christians and to destroy that vile race from the lands of our friends." All who die, by the way, whether by land or by sea or in battle against the pagans, shall have immediate remission of sins. This I grant them through the power of God with which I am invested. Let those who have been accustomed unjustly to wage private warfare against the faithful now go against the infidels and end with victory this war, which should have been begun long ago. Let those who for a long time who have been robbers now become knights. Let those who have been fighting against their brothers and relatives now fight in a proper way against the barbarians. Let those who have been serving as mercenaries for small pay now obtain the eternal reward. Let those who work, let those who have been wearing themselves out in both body and soul now work for a double honor. As soon as winter is over and spring comes, let them eagerly set out on the way with God as their guide. Yeah, I mean, so there's some key themes just to really call out here real quick. Obviously, you know, tying everything together in in the sense of, you know, receiving heavenly grace and and such. But, you know, one thing that's going on through Western Europe, as we know, is lots of people are fighting with each other. And the Pope uses this opportunity to say, stop fighting with each other, Christians. Let's all go bind together and, and fight the real enemy over here in the East. And it's a little ironic because... While yes, the uh, you know the Muslims had taken control of of the territory in the Levant. I mean, we saw in Sicily and in many times in Levant, they were actually relatively tolerant and got along with the people that they you know were now conquering. So Christianity was not really overly persecuted for the most part by the Muslims. Yet he used this theme of them being the infidels and you know raping and murdering Christians to rally support to the Crusades. So. The crusading efforts start with what is known as the People's Crusade. This was a disaster with thousands of Jews being massacred by would-be crusaders and a humiliating defeat of the Christians by the Seljuk Turks. The anti-Jewish actions were condemned by the Catholic Church and are viewed in history as the beginning of anti-Semitic campaigns in Europe that culminated with the Holocaust in World War II. 
Now, the People's Crusade was unorganized and did not include many in the way of trained knights or soldiers. It was more like a spur-of-the-moment, militarized pilgrimage of the masses. The more proper nobility of the crusading effort were put were putting formal war plans into action and recruiting their ranks. But by August of 1096, the four primary armies began their journey to the east. Now, our goal is here. Our goal here is to put the story of the Crusades in the context of political history. So we're not going to dive too deep into the details of the Crusades. There's great books like Dan Jones's book on the Crusades that you can read. Uh, the points of interest are how the activities of the Crusades shaped the political realities of Western Europe with a particular focus on England. So with this caveat aside, Matt, let's review the key players who departed from Western Europe to fight in the East in the results of the campaign. Yeah, right. So the, the armies which took part in this first crusade were largely from the West, but included also a military contingent from the Byzantine Empire. I mean, they're the ones who asked for it after all, right? The war was a success for, for the Christians. Much of Anatolia and the Levant was conquered, and new political states were then founded, which were known to the French as Outremer, uh, or generally described today as the Crusader States. So I, I was going to go into a whole bunch of detail, the key players of this first crusade and the leaders of the crusader states. It's just going to be too much. <laughs> so we're going to do our best to give up an ultra short ish version of this and highlight the tight connections between the crusades and the affairs of England and France. So two of the French leaders, uh, two of the French leaders of the armies were Robert Curtos, the oldest son of William the Conqueror, who we talked about in the last episode and Stephen Count of Blois. This, this Stephen fled the battles early, which brought shame to his family. He returned in kind of part two of the crusade in 1101 and died in battle in 1102. His son is this, one of the stars of episode eight, King Stephen of England, who battled Empress Matilda in the anarchy. Another leader, army leader, who was accused of fleeing the battlefield early was Hugh Count of Vermandois and the son of King Henry the first of France and brother of King Philip of the first of France who ruled from 1059 until 1108, which spanned the, the uh, reigns of Edward, the confessor, Harold Godwinson, William, the conqueror, William Rufus and Henry the first. So Hugh also returned in 1101 in part two and also died in battle. We'll talk just a little bit about the establishment and the rule of the kingdom of Jerusalem. This was the most important of the crusader states. Godfrey of Bouillon, which was a region north of Burgundy and east of Champagne and part of the uh, Holy Roman Empire, led forces from the Western uh, from the Western Holy Roman Empire. Uh, Godfrey was installed as the first king of Jerusalem, though he chose to take the title Defender of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, and he died in 1100 and was succeeded by his younger brother, Baldwin I, and then cousin, Baldwin II, who were both key members of his army. Baldwin I had previously held the title of the Count of Edessa, ruling over the crusader state that was known as the County of Edessa. And Godfrey and Baldwin I were sons of Eustace of Bouillon, who was one of the best friends and key allies of William the Conqueror. Now, Baldwin II had no male heirs, but a daughter named Mel Melisende, 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 excuse me, yeah. who was poised to inherit the throne. Baldwin II wanted to safeguard the dynasty and turned to King Louis VI of France, who helped arrange the marriage of Melisende to Count Folk of Anjou. So in 1129, Folk left Anjou in the hands of his son, Geoffrey, and moved to Jerusalem, where he was married. Baldwin II died in 1131, leaving the crown to Queen Melisende and King Folk, who ruled together in Folk's death in 1143. 
Now, Queen Melcende continued ruling along their son with their son, King Baldwin III, until she died in 1153 after the Second Crusade. Now, you should remember Folk and his son. This is the same Folk who sparred with King Henry I of England and ultimately arranged for his son, Geoffrey Plantagenet, to marry Empress Matilda. As Empress Matilda was pressing her claim for the English throne, her husband's stepmother was jointly ruling Jerusalem. In fact, she probably had the upper hand. Contemporary historian William of Tyre wrote, The rule of the kingdom remained in the power of the Lady Queen Melcinde, a queen beloved by God to whom it passed by hereditary right. And also said, Folk did not attempt to take initiative, even in trivial matters, without Melcinde's knowledge. Melcinde was no mere regent queen for her son Baldwin III, he said, but a queen regent reigning by the right of hereditary and civil law. Now, in the following decades, the Crusader states had mixed success in establishing friendly relations with the Byzantians and the Muslims. Sometimes things would be calm, and other times small conflicts and battles would emerge. There would also be a near-constant stream of Western Christians coming to the Holy Land for pilgrimage or crusading efforts. So while the historical labels of the First Crusade and Second Crusade speak specifically to the series of conflicts in 1096 and 1099 and 1147 to 1150, respectively, there are about four or five minor crusades in the same time frame, depending, of course, on how you define a crusade. That doesn't even count battles and conflicts in Spain, which are very similar in objective. Note, if you've heard the term Reconquista, that is what we are talking about here. In fact, the Spanish Reconquista is defined as broadly from 718 to 1492. So now, before we get into the Second Crusade, it, it is in this interwar period when the Knights Templar are founded. This order of knights was founded in 1119 and established headquarters in the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Other contemporary Catholic military orders include the Order of the Holy Sepulchre and the Knights Hospitalier. That's right. That's right. So now let's wrap things up here with the Second Crusade and a name you have hopefully maybe heard, Eleanor of Aquitaine. So as we shift into the Second Crusade, we're going to primarily use this as a vehicle to introduce this other extraordinary woman of history, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Her life and legacy includes being the wife of two kings— mother of three kings, mother-in-law of two more kings, and grandmother of a king of England, a Holy Roman Emperor, a king of Germany, who was never actually coronated as the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, a king of Castile in Spain, a queen of Castile and Leon, both uh, in Spain, a queen of Portugal, a queen of France, a queen of Aragon, again, another place in Spain, a queen of Sicily, a queen of Scotland, a Holy Roman Empress, and a Latin Empress of Constantinople. That's pretty amazing. (laughs) Yeah, she's she's you know like you have all these guys that are impressive and but but like the women in this period shine through and Eleanor of Aquitaine is especially one of those uh, she's she's a really strong woman who just doesn't put up with crap she does not so if you recall from our French geography lesson in last episode episode eight Aquitaine is the large dust duchy in southern France that actually contains several counties within its domain. The language in Aquitaine is also different than the language spoken in central and northern France. Uh, The ancestors of Eleanor, who had ruled the Duchy of Aquitaine in a continuous line since 962, starting with William III, who incidentally, how about this, married Rollo's daughter. Do you remember Mm. Rollo from episode six? How could Uh, I forget? 
Yes. So now fast forward to William the Ninth, Duke of Aquitaine. He was born in 1071, joined the crusade, uh, that crusade of 1101, you know, the part two one, and was far more famous for being a poet and one of the uh, France's first French troubadours than his military prowess. He was also a bit of a womanizer. One source states that he was, quote, one of the most courtly men in the world and one of the greatest deceivers of women. He was a fine knight at arms, liberal in his womanizing, and a fine composer and singer of songs. He traveled much throughout the world seducing women. Okay. <laughs> now, this is we actually tell this story because it's a little relevant in parts because it paints a difference in the cultural, you know, cultural dynamic of central and southern France. Uh, this is obviously a generality, generality, but um Eleanor grows up in this very uh, romantic, fluid songs, poetry uh, that was going on in southern France in Aquitaine, who also spoke a different language, as we just noted, versus everything that's going to be going on up in where we typically think of France and Paris and Normandy and, and all of that going on in the north. So. Anyways, uh, this led to on-again, off-again battles with William, uh, our William the Ninth, and the Catholic Church, as you might suspect. His oldest son, William the Tenth, was born in Toulouse, which um, at, by this time, the family had expanded territories to include Aquitaine, Gascony, and Toulouse. William the Ninth took up a mistress that continued his scandals with the church and led to the loss of Toulouse. It also strained the relationship with his son, William the Tenth which oddly resulted in Mar William the 10th marrying the daughter of his father's mistress. Holy cow. Uh, it was this couple then that brought Eleanor of Aquitaine into the world in 1122. Yeah. I feel like this is a good place to kind of stop and blow apart the myth that everyone who existed in this time period was moral and Christian. And yeah, like this was a Christian society, but I think if you're listening to the show, you're getting the vibe that, uh, you know, their rulers were the same as our rulers, you know, the, holding up the Bible, but not acting Christian at all uh, or, or following the uh, the doctrines. So and and there was a lot of atheism at this time in the in the regular population as well. There are a lot of contemporary reports of atheism. So the idea that, uh, you know, Matt, when I hear about the Crusades and, oh, how many people have been killed in the name of religion? It's like. Well, true religion, not many. Yeah, right, um, right. in all religions, but in the name of power and government and money, yeah, a lot of people. Yeah. Um, now let's fast forward to 1137. William the Tenth dies. Eleanor inherits the Duchy of Aquitaine and is arranged to be married to the heir uh, to the French throne. She is married just a few days later. This is important, but not a week later. The King of France, Louis the Sixth, died. At the age of 15, Eleanor became, became the Queen of France along with her husband, King Louis VII. Louis VII was originally raised for a life in the church, but those plans changed when his older brother died unexpectedly. This led him to bring uh, to being quieter while Eleanor was high-spirited. High a quote attributed to Eleanor states that she had thought to marry a king only to find she married a monk. That has all the context that you, <laughs> the <page laughs> that you need. Yeah. yeah so there, uh, Louis tried to please his wife, however, wink, wink, when, he, when her sister tried to marry a high ranking noble who was already a married man, Louis defended the lovebirds despite armed opposition from other key houses. He personally got involved in the burning of a town which killed around 1,500 people who had sought a refuge in a church. Louis was devastated and sought reconciliation with the church. At the urging of the influential abbot, 
Bernard of Clairvaux, King Louis VII, announced on Christmas Day of 1145 that he would lead a new crusade to the Holy Land. If you were a king and you messed up in this time period, you got a do-over from the Pope by a, by just launching a crusade. That's right. We'll, we'll yeah. see that in the in the scumbag King John. <laughs> So the excitement of a new crusade was just what Eleanor wanted instead of being bored at court with her monkish husband. Uh, she joined her husband on this journey to the Holy Land, eventually coming to the Principality of Antioch, another one of our crusader states, in 1148, where her uncle Raymond was Prince of Antioch by way of his marriage to Princess Constance, who happened to be a direct descendant of both her father and mother key leaders in the crusade. Ancestry is a mixed Italo-Norman-French-Armenian, which already shows the melting pot that is establishing here, uh, beginning to develop in the crusader states. By the 1140s, Antioch was torn between allegiances to Jerusalem and Constantinople. A debate then followed as to where the Crusaders' army should focus next. Louis wanted to take his to put his focus completely on completing his journey to Jerusalem and went to proceed. He proceeded then to attack Damascus. Raymond felt that an attack on Aleppo would be a more prudent strategy. Now, Chris, what do you think about this situation in Aleppo? What's Aleppo? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, Thank yeah. You. Uh, Louis, you Louis continued to Jerusalem, and the attack on Damascus was a disaster. The second crusade was seen as a failure. Louis and Eleanor returned to France, and Eleanor began to press for an annulment. Listen, you're no fun, and you're a loser. <laughs> How do I get out of this thing? We'll cut the details short, but the annulment was finally granted in the March of 1152. To the surprise of King Louis, Eleanor married Henry, the Duke of Normandy. In May of 1152, who is this Henry? Well, of course, this is Henry we met at the end of episode eight when we introduced him as Henry Fitz Empress. The Treaty of Winchester in 1153 secured Henry's succession to the throne. He and his wife, Eleanor, were coronated king and queen of England in late 1154 after the king uh, at the, the death of King Stephen. So imagine you're the king of France. Your wife leaves you, calls you a loser. And then goes and marries the virile king of England, basically <laughs> your arch rival. This is this is like the uh, Eleanor's like who's the who's the who's going to make him the most angry? Well, it's Henry, and she couldn't get pregnant, and then marries Henry and has eight children with Henry most in like Henry's, thirteen years. <laughs> right, uh, he's very very manly compared to uh, old King Louis the Seventh. Uh, so most of Henry's reign in England in the 1150s and 60s were preoccupied with restoring order and building a stronger system of government in England after the Civil War of the Anarchy. He completely revolutionizes government, which plays into our next episode. However, Henry spent most of his time in France consolidating power and engaging in gambits against King Louis VII and other powerful nobles and territories of interest. And in 1162, King Henry appointed his advisor, Thomas Beckett, to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. And that is where we will pick up in the next episode, Matt. That's right. It's going to be a fun one, Chris. Yes, it is the Magna Carta episode. It is uh, a great topic and a fun look at this period. The Plantagenets are uh, a real fun family. Uh, you definitely don't want to get on their bad side. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this e episode of the History of Modern Politics. If you'd like to hear the uh, episode 10 right away, you can go subscribe now at thehistoryofmodernpolitics.com where we recorded many of these episodes and released them to the History of Modern Politics Plus crowd months ago. 
and by the time you're hearing this, there may be even season two starting and rolling out already. And you can find all of our show notes. You can find our reading selections. You can find the video. So lots of goodies over there at History of Modern Politics, Politics Plus. And members of We Are Libertarians Plus also get that as well. So thank you so much for joining us. Matt, thank you. Thank you, Chris. And we will see you again in two weeks.